Good morning. My name is Ben Dotson, and I'm one of the uh, elders here, and I get the privilege to share God's Word with you this morning, um, and we'll see if that's a mistake or not, but I hope not. Um, we're going to be continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see again that Keith has mentioned many times the significance is that it's not on the Mount, but that Jesus is speaking to us. And I'd like to start, as I'm in need of this, and that is to be, have my heart, my mind reoriented to God, uh, to be submissive, to be teachable as I approach the Word of God. So to prepare our hearts, I'd like to start by just reading a few descriptors uh, of who Jesus is. Jesus is the exact image of God. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the true light, the righteous one, the Word of God, Emmanuel, the rock, the first fruits, the heir of all things, the deliverer and redeemer, the author and perfecter of salvation, the name to which every knee will bow, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is our Lord and our Savior, our King, the head of the church, whom we'll be hearing from this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, what a privilege it is to, to even utter those words from my mouth that you are my Father. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection, how he sits at your right hand today. Spirit, we pray that you would illumine these scriptures and these truths to our hearts as we step into your word. We pray that we would not leave unchanged. It's in Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right, before we look at the verses we're going to be covering today, I'm going to take on a chunk here that maybe uh, was wise or unwise, and again, we'll see if that was good or not. But um, to be reminded of where Matthew has brought us all the way up to the Sermon on the Mount, I want to kind of hash and quickly go back through chapters 1 through 3, just to kind of see where he has led us, um, actually 1 through 4. So he's been building this case all the way in chapter 1, verse 1, who Jesus is. And he starts by calling him not just Jesus, but Christ, Jesus Christ. The addition of Christ tells us exactly where Matthew is going. That is a title, the word Christ. And it means Messiah or anointed one or chosen one. He then takes us through the genealogy of Jesus Christ to show us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He is the prophesied king and deliverer. We then move into Jesus' birth, a, a miraculous virgin birth. The Holy Spirit is involved. Angels are professing who Jesus is. And two very important things are said about Jesus. One, he will save his people from their sins. How much sweeter and better is that than hoping that we'll just be saved from oppression of human rulers? Our sinful nature will be removed so that we can be in his presence. The second thing, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The prophecy of the virgin birth has come true, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This world will never be the same. 
the Son of God, the Righteous One, has penetrated the darkness. Heaven has come to earth. Time will not allow for us to dig further into chapter 2, but know that many more Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled as it goes through the story of Jesus and as he was a baby and as Mary and Joseph move around, those are prophecies being fulfilled. And then we move into the chapters 3 and 4 where John the Baptist is declaring, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And God the Father audibly declares from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Christ does what man could not do. He is tempted for 40 days, and he is the perfect Adam. The one who does not fail, but begins the defeat of bondage of sin and the rule of Satan, as he does not succumb to his lies. Midway through chapter 4, we'll see that uh, John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus begins his ministry by preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every type of disease or affliction, and this began to create great crowds. Now here's something very interesting as we look at the beginning of chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we see that crowds have followed him, but it states that Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So what this is doing, it's not describing every person that was there, but it is showing you two types of people that were there. Matthew does this throughout his whole book. He's always creating two different distinctions. And these are them, the ones who sat down and he taught, or being the disciples, and those who made a commitment to Jesus. And then he's also referring to the crowds, those who are curious and astounded by Jesus and are hearing Jesus teach his disciples. Jesus then begins to unravel what, unravel what it looks like to repent and belong to the kingdom of heaven. And that's also known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we've been. And that is what Keith has been doing such a great job of leading us through. So today we're going to jump in near the end of the sermon. And I hope that that quick look at Matthew has our hearts anxious to hear what Christ, Emmanuel, the Son of God, our King, wants to tell us about his kingdom. So if you could, turn to Matthew 7, 7 through 14, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. And we're going to break that up into three different sections. The first will be verses 7 through 11, and then we'll look at verse 12 and finish 13 and 14, and then try and close it up with a summary. Let me just read those to us quickly here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So you'll see this is an easy passage we're going to try and jump through here. Um, 
But God is good in all of this. So we're going to start in verses 7 through 11. And there's six kind of points that just kind of jump off the page and I want to kind of highlight as we look at these first few verses. And the first point that we should pick up on is it starts with ask, which automatically puts us where we should be, in a state of humility, seeking answers from a higher authority. The second point is those who want something, they're going to be active. They will be asking, seeking, and knocking. Those three verbs are present imperatives or commands, meaning that they're continuous or repeated actions. They're done indefinitely. What has just happened is a lifestyle has been created. Jesus is imploring us to talk to the Father. This is point three. He's asking, ask, seek, and knock. And the grace and mercy lavished upon us in Christ asking us to do that is I don't know, think we'll fully understand that until we're in heaven, but he's the one who's made that even possible. And he's imploring us, go speak to the Father. Point four, everyone who asks will receive. Now I know that some of you are already thinking in your minds, I've asked many times and I've never received. And my response to you and to myself in those moments is that our good Father's perceived lack of answering that's an answer, and that's for our good. You see, in this lifestyle of dependency on our Father, we must look back to the Lord's Prayer, which Rick Hurst did an amazing job of calling us to a few weeks back. And you see that requests that don't start with hallowing His name, a hope that this world and our lives will pour out praises to God, a desire that His kingdom come, and his will be done, then our prayers are of the flesh, and do we really want those to be answered? The fifth point, and this may be the best backhanded compliment Jesus has ever given. He compares our good gift to the two most common pieces of diet in that day, fish and bread. And he says, if your son asks you for fish, are you going to give him a serpent? No. If he asks for bread, are you going to give him a stone? No. Well, good. You know, you've done something good. Like, how backhanded of a compliment is that? He's basically saying there is no comparison to what the Father in heaven is going to give you. And if your good gift compares to just not giving your son a stone or a serpent instead of bread and fish. There's no contest. Six point. It's our Father in heaven whom we are asking things of. That means we must be his children. And who is a child of God? And John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's Jesus what we're talking about. And so that's important because it's a distinction, again, that he is speaking to believers. He's speaking, Jesus is saying, this is people who want to be a part of my kingdom and have accepted that. Here's what it looks like. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling us how to live in the kingdom now. He's not just preparing us for heaven and saying, this is, I hope you get this someday, and when we get to heaven, this is when all this will come to fruition. He's saying, you get to live that life now. Just as he brought heaven to earth in his incarnation, he is now telling us that we can be part of heavenly kingdom living now. And to participate, we have to cultivate a lifestyle of reliance upon our Father. 
who will answer, and he will do so with good gifts. So let's look at a paralleling, ver- paralleling verse that shows us the greatest gift outside of justification that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gave us. And that's going to be Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, I don't think, and for me personally, this is a struggle as well, I don't understand the gift that the Holy Spirit is to us. I don't think we get it. And I think it's because we, he embodies all the virtues of God's kingdom, and what we've done is we cultivate a lifestyle not of humble reliance upon God, but upon other things. So what do I mean? Whether you know it or not, you're always asking, seeking, and knocking. And if you're anything like me, a typical day can start with, good morning, Ben. Good morning. Hallowed be your name. Yes. Let's hope that people acknowledge that they're part of your kingdom today. That would just make it a great day. Oh, and then what is my will? And how are we going to make sure that gets happened? You see, as I seek and I ask and knock at my own door, I receive an answer as well. And it is one that creates this endless cycle of idol-making, such as approval of men, or numbing entertainment of Netflix and chill, or to steal a quote from Kim LeGraff, retail therapy, where the purchasing of that next best thing is what's going to make me happy. See, we're not simply knocking at the wrong door. We're giving power to powerless things. Our created kingdoms, our created kingdoms are filled with bondage, stress, anxiety, fear, and infrequent moments of doing good to others. And those are because it somehow benefits us. It is as stark of a contrast as you can get to asking, seeking, and knocking at our Father's door, living as a citizen of his kingdom, and living guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, a quick side note, this is, I've labeled this kind of morning battle. As you wake up and figure out which kingdom you're going to step into to start the day, it's how do you find the off button to the me machine? That's the battle. How do you turn me off? And you know what? I find that that off button is at the same place each morning. It's at the feet of Jesus. As I sit at his feet, I'm reminded that my heart is deceitful and wicked. I'm not a good ruler. And as I'm reminded that while I was yet his enemy, he left heaven and took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died and he rose again so that I may have life. And what does he want in return? Simply for me to receive that truth. Confess that I'm a sinner. Declare that he is God. That his life, death, and resurrection are the only thing that will satisfy the wrath of God. The one true creator God is now my father. And I get the privilege to live a life full of purpose, derived by living under a true king, and asking, what would you do? What should I do today to bring your name glory, not my own? You see, that's why the Holy Spirit is such a huge gift. 
And this is not going to be an extensive look at the Holy Spirit, obviously, but if you want more information, you should check out some of the women's ministries uh, leaders or participants because Kim Weir has been taking them through a full in-depth study of the Holy Spirit. So go get some coffee with those ladies. I'm sure they can explain it all to you. But for this part, the Holy Spirit is a huge gift because he reminds us that we are not our own, but children of God. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that reminder should move us back to a state of asking, seeking, and knocking at the right door. At our Father's door instead of our own. What happens next is the promise that the Father will answer. And he answers with kingdom fruit produced by the Spirit inside of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Without the kind of Father we have, without the Lord and Savior we have in Christ, and without the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we would never be able to take on the commands that we're about to see. So let's look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You can also look at Galatians 5.14. This may be one you've heard before. Uh, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe we should just skip that one because it seems like everybody's got that down. Does that sound good? No? All right, let's jump in. You know, it's interesting that there was another similar phrase going around this time when Jesus spoke this. And it was in other religions, and it was in philosophical thoughts of the day, but it was different in what it said. It said, whatever or whatsoever you hate, do not do unto others. Whatsoever you hate, do not do unto others. And that basically leaves you with the idea that you should refrain from negative things towards other people. Pretty good. Now how does what Jesus say differ? Well, as Jesus does, he flips everything upside down. And he turns it into a positive. Whatever you wish someone would do for you, do also for them. You see, Jesus isn't looking for some sort of simple moral behavior change in us that we can simply check off. He's looking for our heart to change. He wants us to go all in. Don't simply refrain from doing things to others that you hate. Love others as you want to be loved. Does that mean, you know, I've really been wanting this new car or this new dress or this new gun or new whatever, so I'm going to go out, I'm going to purchase that, I'm going to go give that to someone else because that's what I would like. That's what I want somebody to do for me. No. And this may sound ridiculous to some of you, but to a lot of us, when we read, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, we quickly try to make that as narrow and small and minimize it to a point of a material thing. It's another checkbox that we prove to ourselves that we're a believer or we're appeasing a God that we feel like we must keep happy. It's off the mark. So it doesn't mean when I see someone whom I disagree, 
this is actually what it does mean, right? So surely does, it doesn't mean when I see someone whom I disagree with politically, morally, or religiously, that I actually invest my time, efforts, and thought life into getting to know them? There's no way. No, they need to listen to what I have to say because I'm right and they are wrong. Is that how you want others to treat you? I think not. You can see how this is meant to create a relational intentionality with others, just as Jesus did even with his enemies. This opens the door to Christianity and to Christians being the greatest advocates for those who are suffering because we want others to treat us as we would treat ourselves. We forget, or maybe we've never been told that by grace we have been saved and are now being sanctified by the gift of the Holy Spirit to bring about a foretaste of kingdom living. Your life is not your own. It was purchased by Christ's blood to be a part of his story, his kingdom, which involves the redemption and the renewal of all things broken by sin. You know why this is so foreign to us? Because we've left Jesus at this salvific figure who holds no other place in our lives other than to save us from hell. We must stop selling the story and mission of God short. The fullness of the story opens up the most adventurous and transcendent life that can be had because it commands us to deny ourselves and love others as we, as we would ourselves. And that brings us to our last two verses, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is about to walk us through several tests. All determined by two choices. The tests reveal what kind of culture is created by the citizens of two different kingdoms. And two different rulers. There are two roads. One leads to life. One leads to destruction. One is hard, one is easy. You have the narrow gate, kingdom of heaven, where God reigns. Wide gate, kingdom of man, where man reigns. You see, the citizen who goes the way of the wide gate relies on democratic human reasoning for righteousness. It is a life of self-preservation, ruled by righteousness derived by our own perceptions of right and wrong and accountable to no one. There's no entrance fee. Now Paul sums up the citizen who goes by the way of the narrow gate much better than I could. And so I want to read to you Philippians 3, 8 through 12. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You see, both kingdoms create culture and who is reigning makes a huge difference. The wide gate is the way of the masses. It's mainstream culture. You don't even have to think you're in it. When you look at your life, you won't look much different than the rest of the world. Life is essentially meaningless, purposeless, except for now where you can just gather as much as you can now and forget those and leave those behind. That's basically the only purpose you have because there's nothing for you at the end. But there is, and it's destruction. New York Times columnist David Brooks calls it the big me. That is the wide gate, the big me. The narrow gate is countercultural. Not many find it. Your life has hardships as it moves against the stream of the masses. However, you're being led by the unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God of love who gave his son up for you so that you may find life now as you love others with a love that loved you first and carries into eternity. Now, searching my own heart, it's gross how quickly I jump to the the idea and thought that I'm on the narrow road and I'm safe. I forget that the other road leads to destruction. And this kind of conjures up some imagery for me in the sense that just picture this mass of people moving this direction. And you hear a voice. It says, look this way, there's life. And a person has a choice to receive that and to turn. And as he does, there's a hand that grabs your hand and starts leading you against the masses. And you have to continue to make the choice to follow this leader. But as you think, all these people flowing past you are leading to destruction. It's not just that you're saved. It's just not that you've been called out of the masses. We have a bigger purpose than that. We have a greater story to tell. We have a God to serve. We can't just be excited that we think we're on the narrow path. And we didn't, we're not on the wide. You remember when we started summarizing the first few chapters of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount started? Remember, it started with two distinctive people, right? Two viewers were listening, disciples and the crowd. You and I have a choice to make. 
Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus and claim him as king where life and flourishing take place? Or do you want to stand in the crowd and only acknowledge him as a really good moral teacher and act as though you're a part of a relationship with him? You see, Jesus is not hoping you somehow survive your time here on earth. He's imploring you to show the world what heaven is like. He is telling you that your life will not look and should not look like the masses. He's telling you that your life is brimming with purpose. And that purpose is found in submitting to God the Father. And he promises to produce life in you by bringing life to others through you. And when we do that, when we live by the kingdom and the spirit, there's a big Christ and a little me. But it's a satisfied me. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. So I'm going to pray, and Jesse will come back up and lead us. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace and your mercy, so evident in your son Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we think through and hear your word, that we don't try and set our opinions above your truth. Father, I pray that we be people who want to be a part of your kingdom. We're tired of being rulers because we are poor rulers. We bring destruction. We don't breathe life into anyone when we are the rulers. Father, will you work in our hearts and our minds and our desires and our affections? Will you draw us close to you? You've drawn near to us. Give us the faith. Give us the hope to cry out to our Father to follow him, to trust him, to lay all things at your feet because you are worthy of that, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.